It's good to be with you again this morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of John, and just the first three verses of the Gospel of John, John 1, 1 through 3. And as we, these next weeks, go over um, these verses in John together, it's important to just kind of orient ourselves just for a moment in what we're doing. We're going to slow down on the prologue. Now, if you're like me, you've probably skipped a lot of prologues in your life. You look at a book, right, and there's a long prologue, so what do you do? You kind of skip it, and you start, you start at page like 20 of the book, and you feel accomplished. Uh, but we're going to slow down, very much slow down, on these first words of this prologue, words that are important, words that should inform not just how we think about Advent, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment, but really about the gospel itself, about what God has done for us and for us in his, his word, but in this story of what we see God doing, what God has accomplished. And this is, comes at, as a time we often call Advent. Now, Advent is not something we're commanded to do in Scripture, but it's something we're free to, to celebrate. It's a time to focus in on really two things. The first is that Jesus came, that Jesus came as a baby. The incarnation happened, and the wonder of that, but also in the midst of that wonderment to look and anticipate the second coming, that he has arrived, but he is going to arrive again and bring the fullness that he offers. And some of that fullness that he offers we see in the Gospel of John. Later in God's Gospel, it'll say that this book is written so that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's really what we're after as we read the Gospel of John and even these verses in the prologue is that we are after life in the name of Jesus, even in this Advent season. So with that hope, with that anticipation, Would you stand this morning for the reading of God's word from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these these words. Lord, as we come to them, would you give us insight into what is, what is true, what is right, what is good. Lord, as we peer into the mysteries of the Trinity, in the mysteries of Advent and all the hope that is there, would you show us by the power of your Spirit what is true. Would you bless the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts together this morning, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, if you, if you have or have had smaller kids around your house, you know that there are certain books that you're going to read again and again and again. Some of those sort of perennial favorites that you've read so many times. And I had this experience reading one of these books that we've read numerous times. You sort of go into autopilot when you're reading a book, and you probably could do this. If I pulled out a few books and started reading them, you might be able to just finish those books off. You might have not read them in in 20 years, and you could still finish some of these books like Goodnight Moon and books like that. Now, sometimes as we enter this season of Advent, it's a little bit like that. You could tell us everything in John. You could probably quote some passages from Luke too. You probably know this story. And when we come to it again, maybe there's some nostalgia. It's kind of nice to talk about baby Jesus and all the wonderment of that. But the familiarity of it, I think, causes us sometimes to go into that autopilot where we fail to miss or we fail to see the wonder of really what is being said here. 
I hope as we slow down this morning, even just on these these first three verses, short verses in the Gospel of John, we'll, we'll get out of that autopilot just a little bit and see a little bit of the wonder of what God is doing in and through his incarnation. See the wonder of that. Because sometimes when we're on that autopilot, when we're reading that book, maybe you've had this experience too, you go into sort of the, you're not thinking about what you're reading, and then the little voice beside you says, that's not how the book goes. I had that this week. Both girls beside me reading a book, and they're both like, Dad, that's not, that's not the words. And sometimes that's how we enter this Christmas season, with a, those aren't really the words. And so I hope this morning we we can slow down and see a little bit about what this truly is about. And to do that, what we're going to do is we're actually going to go prior to the arrival, prior to Jesus coming and ask the question, what was Jesus doing before he was the incarnate Son of God? What was he he doing? Now, maybe, maybe you've heard the old quip about this, that he was creating hell for people who asked the question about this to meddle into sort of these parts of God's sovereignty and his mystery. And so as we do this this morning, I do want to be cognizant of the fact that this is a mystery. We don't know everything, but God's word does give us a glimpse, a picture of what God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit were doing before the creation. And that's actually an important thing to see and help us understand the fullness of what Advent is about, the fullness of the incarnation. And so that's our our hope this morning, is to look at who this Word of God who comes is. And we'll see a few different different aspects of, of His nature and His character that point us to the hope that we have. The first thing that we see as we ask this question about what Jesus is doing is this, verse 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, what does that remind us of? If you've read your Bible a little bit, if you've been around the church, you might think very quickly of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. And I think there's an intentionality here to remind us of that beginning, but note what the text is saying. It's not really saying that in the beginning, the Word sort of was created. It's not saying in the beginning, suddenly there was the Word. It's saying in the beginning was the Word. That is to say, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word that is described here, who is Jesus that we see later in the text, Jesus who takes on flesh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, already existed. He wasn't created. He didn't have a starting point. He simply is. In the beginning was the Word. And at the very outset of this passage and this gospel, we see that there is an eternal Son of God, an eternal Son of God with no beginning. In the beginning, He was there. When time started, He was already there. Even when we think of the word eternal, we're sort of bound by thinking it in terms of a long time, right? I think that's how most of us think of the word eternal. It's a long time. It's not really what this is describing. It's not simply a long time. It's simply He was, always has been. There was never a time when he was not. In fact, he was there before there was time. This is the wonder and sort of the the mind-stretching aspects of the Gospel of John in these early passages. This passage will stretch your mind. It will stretch your heart and it will stretch your faith because it is so clear and yet so amazing in how it declares the truth of who God is and who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word. He was eternal. 
Think about that compared to the frailty that we see of, of a baby. A baby who is, has a beginning. We see that later in verse 14. It says this, and the word became flesh. It's a change. That was something that was different, a categorically different thing when the Son of God comes and takes on flesh. But before that, he simply was. Always, always has been. Some of us might think of sort of that reality as just this sort of darkness. That's probably the picture that comes into some of our, our minds when we think of a time before creation, just blackness and nothingness. But really, what is there, we see what is there before the beginning was God. And God wasn't there in some sort of darkness, just sort of biding his time and being kind of bored. He was there in his fullness, in his full Trinitarian self, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, these verses won't, won't mention the Spirit here. We'll see that later in the Gospel of John. But here, it gives us a picture of God himself, in his fullness, existing eternally, fully content, not needing to create, self-sufficient, fully God. In the beginning was the word. What is, this, what is this word? Now, maybe you know that that's translating a word, logos, and we can talk a little bit later about all that that means about this, this word, but, but simply ask the question, what does a word do? A word communicates. There's reason, there's logic, there's, there's meaning behind it, but of all the words that could have been used to describe the Son of God, it's, it's the word here at the beginning. Later in the gospel, it'll talk about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. But right now, it is the Word, the one who communicates, the one who, as we will see, will create. And there's a whole wonderful picture of there, but we see this eternal, powerful Word that is going to come and is going to change everything. This changes everything, the fact that we see this picture of the Word. A second person in the Trinity should make us ponder and be amazed at what we're about to see him, him do. Maybe, maybe you know this, that words change things. Maybe you've experienced this in your life. There are certain words that, when they're said, have significant meaning. Think of some of them like this. I love you. I believe you. I'm sorry. I do. I can't. Those are all words that maybe brought to mind something from your story, from your experience. All of those words changed you in some way when they were said to you or when you said them. And here we see an eternal word who's going to change things far more than any of those words that you've experienced. One who comes not as some disconnected concept as a word, but a, a person. A person and a word who takes on flesh and lives and speaks a word that is eternal, not the flippant words that you and I say to each other, but an eternal word who is Jesus, who spoke and changed everything. It's important, I think, to, to just begin there and think just for a moment about that reality that this word has power and changes things. I think Advent maybe is a, it's a difficult time for some of us because we're not really 100% sure how we're supposed to be moving forward. There's the joy of Christmas, all sort of that, and then there's also the reality that there are still things in our life that don't really fit the joy of Christmas, right? There are places of pain, places of, of waiting, and that's really often where the church has gone, that Advent is a time of, of waiting. All of you here are waiting for something this morning. Might be different, different things. Maybe you're just waiting for school to be done. Maybe you're waiting finally to be recognized for the work that you've put in. Finally, to have some, some reconciliation, waiting for a child to return, 
from college or maybe just relationally to return. We're waiting for all sorts of things. And, and what this passage does and what Advent allows us to do is understand that there is joy even as we wait. Even as we wait, there is the reality that this is, is true, that God is eternal. He was there. He's eternal. And so it gives us confidence as we wait for the second coming. He came. He will come again. He is not sort of was just active in this one time. He, he created that time. He knows the day he will come again, that we wait for with hope and with anticipation, something that is tangible and eternal, a cosmic, cosmic hope, and all of it sort of turns and begins here, as we see, in the beginning was the Word. Now, how can this eternal Word do anything and change anything and have power? Well, the next part of this verse tells us that it is a divine Word, a divine Word. It says this, words we probably know well. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those are, those are small words, but there is so much beauty and Trinitarian truth packed into what we just saw there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, all of us grew up at a time where the Trinity was something we had probably maybe heard of in church history. The Trinity wasn't new. It was, it was there, but think for a moment that you're somebody reading John's gospel for the first time. Yes, there's hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Yes, there are little things here and there that might say there's, there's some plurality in God, and, and maybe there were some questions, but, but God is a singular thing in your mind. And what do you read here? The Jesus that maybe you've heard some stories about, maybe you knew, is, is described here as God. This is astounding. This is new. This is sort of opening us to see there is more to this story than any of us had our minds and our thoughts wrapped around. He was God. This word is, is divine. The, the sense, it's, it's stressed here and should shape how we view, our, our, have our view of God. What we see here as we read through the rest of John and, and really brought to the surface here is that we have an eternal father and an eternal son. It's always been that way. There isn't sort of some essence or God behind the God that represents himself as father and son. He, what is God? God is a father and a son and a spirit. That is who God is and has always been that way. And we're brought into this, this new revelation, this new picture of who God is in an astounding way that, that connects what we see in Bethlehem, that little baby, and then everything else that happens in that story to the reality that before the world was created, before any of that was there, we have this divine word. It was with God and was God. It's as simple, it's as, simple as, as that. And really, maybe if you, you know some of the, the history here, that very frequently, every few centuries, somebody has had trouble with this and come up with a new view. They're sort of heresies throughout the history of the church where somebody will look at this and say, that doesn't make any sense. I've got to make sense of this. And so we come up with ideas that, well, Jesus has to be sort of a created secondary thing. Because for him to be God, I just can't get my, my mind around that. And yet the simplest way to take this text is, is as it's offered. It's not saying that God was a divine or that Jesus was somehow just divine. John could have wrote it another way. Made it very clear that he was talking just about somebody who was, who was divine. But there's a deliberateness in this text and the way it's written to say that Jesus is God. And always has been God. 
didn't become God at some point. He has always been God, eternally God, eternally co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And so there's an invitation for us here not to, not to simplify the mystery, but to understand that our logic is not God's logic. This is who God is. This is who his nature, or what his nature is, this eternal God, Father, and Son. And, and what are they doing? What are they doing in the midst of, of this picture as we begin to see that there is this, this Godhead, this Father and Son, and it actually matters for us? How do we begin to understand that? I don't know if you've ever had this uh, conversation with a, a kid, and they're trying to figure out what life was like before they were born. Maybe you've, you've had this. They ask questions about, well, they'll be looking through an old picture, and they'll see a picture of, of you and say, well, what was I doing then? Well, you weren't, you weren't born yet. Well, where was I? Well, you weren't born yet. And, and, and there's just this failure to kind of get your mind around that. I think that's sometimes what you and I experience as we come to this passage, and we think of God eternally being a trinity, and we say, well, what was he doing? He says, well, he was being God. But what was he doing? He was being God. And that's what we see in this passage, a picture of God in his self-sufficiency being God himself. And this, this idea that we see here of the word being with God helps us see that. The with there isn't simply sort of an alongside, but almost a, a face-to-face reality, that they are with one another. There's a sense of, of persons, God the Father, God the Son, being with one another, towards one another, so to speak. That's what we see glimpsed here in this, this text, that they are not sort of just sort of coming together at one point in time, God the Father, God the Son, to accomplish something, but their very essence, their life is, is together. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, it has a great deal to do with us. Even as we peer into the, the mystery of this, we see a few notes in Scripture of what this Godhead is doing. I'll read them quickly for us. One is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, where it says there is an eternal life that was with the Father. An eternal life. The Father and Son and Spirit have an eternal life together, a life that is rich and full and complete. John 17, verse 24 adds that you have given me these because you love me before the foundation of the world. Love before the foundation of the world. What is God the Father and God the Son doing? They're loving each other. John 1, verse 4, or John 1, 4 verse 8 reminds us what? That God is love. What is God doing? God is, is loving himself. God is love. This is what we see. But it doesn't just remain there. It's not just some sort of static love that's, that's out there somewhere, this even dynamic love that's out there somewhere. We're brought into that. And this is where Advent becomes wonderful, to see God loving himself completely, fully, completely throughout time, before there was time. Then what happens? Well, John 15, verse 9 says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That Trinitarian love becomes expressed towards us. Not even only in Jesus in the incarnation, but as Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5 will tell us, it goes even farther, farther, that we, his people, were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us. This rich Trinitarian love, this fullness of God before time that is now brought into time and space in the incarnation. 
That's what we enjoy. That's what we celebrate. That should move our hearts and our minds to wonder and amazement at what Christ has done. That there is, there is love that is expressed to us. That his grace is divine. That it, it knows no end because of this eternal love. I think I shared this with a few of you uh, recently, but a quote I came across from a guy named Gerhardus Voss I think is helpful here. An old Dutch theologian put it this way, asking the question about if God is sort of this trinity and love, then, then what does it have to do with us? We're sort of the, the payoff here. He says this, the best proof that God will never cease loving his people is that God never started loving them. The best proof that God will never cease loving his people is that God never started loving them. Now, that might almost sound heretical, but it's not. It's a picture of God as a trinity, eternally loving, and that eternal love is what then is communicated to us, and that love of the trinity has no start and no end. That's hopeful. When we see that love communicated on the cross, in the manger, it's that eternal love that is, is taking form, taking flesh, as it were, and dwelling among us and pointing us to the love that is eternal. What do we do with that? Well, there's no three-point application from that truth, but I think we're invited simply to wonder at it, to be amazed at it, and actually to, to put our weight and our, our hope and our, our confidence in it. I don't know how many of you have ever gone sort of hiking or just been out in, in the woods or in nature in the winter and needed to or wanted to go out on a frozen pond or a lake. Maybe you haven't done this, grew up in Canada, we did this occasionally. I remember one time in particular, there was this lake that had frozen kind of early in the year with no snow on it. And so it was just like glass. It was beautiful. And when you see frozen ice like that, what do you want to do? You want to go skate on it. It's beautiful. But what do you need to do? You need to make sure the ice is thick enough. You gotta have four to five inches of ice in the middle for you to be safe to, to go out on. And so you have to cut the ice and measure and do all those sorts of things. The analogy to this passage is in the same way when you see that beautiful Trinitarian reality of God's love, what do you do? Well, you gaze at it. You say, I want to be enjoying that. I want to be close to that. And so you examine it and you see that it can bear your weight. And then you go and you enjoy it. You go and you live your life in light of it. The fact that you, if you have confessed your sin and joined to Christ, then, then you are joined to this love. It doesn't change. The application is to enjoy it. And as you enjoy it, to glorify God, to worship Him, to sing His praises, to say, how can this be? This eternal love that, that, that predates time itself, that now I'm part of. How can this be? As I confess my sins and run to it, he, he rejoices to accept me. This is something we can anchor our souls on. It almost seems too bold, but this passage corrects our view of God to one who is eternal and one who has loved us eternally and expresses that love to us through Jesus. True hope, true rest for our, our souls. But that love that he has here, that is eternal, that we see expressed here a little bit, doesn't simply stay sort of an eternal thing, but it always expresses itself as something. It communicates to us. Look at verse 3. It 
says this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was, that was made. When you first read that, it might sort of seem, well, why are we suddenly jumping to creation? But let's, let's think about this for a moment. What does creation do? Why, why, why is there creation? It brings glory to God. It's real primary purpose. It glorifies God. It, it brings forth his, his wonder and, and causes us, his creation, to glorify him. It brings wonder and glory to his name. The heavens declare the glory of God. Even here, the word creating, Jesus being the agent of creation, is the word speaking clearly to us, clearly of who God is, clearly of the fullness and the wonder of all that is to come. That this love of God didn't just sort of stay there, but it, it came and it overflowed, if you will, in this creative act as the word speaks clearly of who God is. But the word doesn't only speak through the creation. We know that even as things are created out of nothing, and as we read in Colossians, all things were from him and for him, and they hold together to him. Even as all of that is true, the word also comes and speaks to us. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 reminds us that he has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us by his son. This word that we see just introduced here is the same word who comes in flesh and speaks to us. The truth of who God is, the truth of salvation, all of that is spoken to us. And the grandeur of creation is joined then with this God-man who comes and speaks takes on his, his creation and speaks to it of his, of his glory. I read a poem this week on uh, sort of the incarnation and some of these, these things, and there was one phrase, really just one word, that sort of caught me off guard as I was reading it. It spoke of the larynx of Jesus. The larynx of Jesus. Now, if you know your larynx is sort of your, part of your throat and part of your sort of system that, that speaks, and what the poet was trying to do was to kind of catch us off guard with the wonder of God speaking to us through a created body. That this God that we see here, with God was God, came and took on a body and spoke to us, spoke clearly to us even through creation, but even then more so speaking clearly his revelation through Jesus' coming. And so this story is not some outside story, but it's something that God comes and brings to us to say this is what is true, that there is an eternal God who loves you, so much so that he sent his son to die for you. And that as you confess your sins, you're joined to that love and that reality that we get to enjoy this story. I tried to illustrate it this way. Somebody gave us a telescope recently. And so it's really hard to find anything when you've got a bunch of trees around you in a telescope. So I can find the moon. And so I, I found the moon. If you know how to do it better than me, then please, please help me out. But I found the moon. And so I showed it to our girls a, a little while ago. And so we're out in the driveway, and we have the telescope on the moon, and we're looking at it, and it's, it's wonderful, and there's the light. And, and one of the things that you very quickly do in that moment is you start talking about the fact that we, we went there. We went to the moon, and not, I you know, there are conspiracy theories about that, but we're going we're gonna to assume for now that we went to the moon. So we went to the moon, and, and that's the first thing we say. We kind of join ourselves to that. We say that's not just this distant thing, but, but somehow we actually got there. And we're trying to do it again, and it's, you, you tell that part of the story. 
It's the same thing in this gospel when we see this wonderful picture of God. It's not that we just look at him out there and say, that's, that's great and that's wonderful out there. But we must tell the next part of the story. That, that God didn't stay distant, but he came and he died and he rose so that we might experience the love of the Father, that, the love of the Father for the Son that we are wrapped up in. That's what Advent's about. Knowing that that has begun, that he has come and joined us to that love and anticipating when he will come again and we'll experience the fullness of that fellowship. That rich, full Trinitarian love is the love that God has for us and the love that we will enjoy for eternity, even as it has been for eternity. That should move us to worship, and that's really the the take-home point, if you will, that because of Advent, because of the Incarnation, the God who became man, we worship with joy and with gladness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, there is so much wonderful truth in this passage of your creation, of your glory, of your Trinitarian self. Lord, we, we, don't, we don't know what that means. We don't know what the Trinity is in its fullness. Lord, thank you that you have shown us enough that we can worship you. Thank you that you have done enough so that we can be a part of the love that you have for the Son, for the Spirit, that we are joined to that by the blood of Christ. Would you ground us in this hope? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.